0: I'm going to um, take my text from Psalm 139, and I don't know how much of uh, this Psalm I'll get through, but uh, I'll probably focus on the first, on the last verses, and then jump up to the first verses. I might be able to fill in a little bit in between. Psalm 139. I'm going to start at verse number 23. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Here, the psalmist willingly subjects himself to the search by God. He doesn't do this arrogantly, attempting to prove and flaunt his own purity or righteousness, But he does it with a sincere heart, knowing that he can put no confidence in himself to be found right in God's eyes. There's a few points from the pulpit commentary. I always accredit people for their writing, so y'all don't think I made this up. I don't have enough of my own comments. It says sometimes, we sometimes say that we know a certain man who is a neighbor, By this, we may mean nothing more than that we can distinguish him from his fellows and give him his proper name. That is a slight acquaintance indeed. Sometimes when we make such an affirmation, we mean that we have a general knowledge of his occupation and his more outward and formal habits. That goes a very little way. Sometimes we mean more than this. We intimate that we know what a man's principles are, what he believes, after what manner he worships, what are his tastes and his companionships. Here, we may think that we have arrived at something very definite and solid. We do not really know what a man's spirit is and what is his real character until we have seen him both in public and in private, just as the apostle saw our Lord. And those are times when he is conscious of our observation and when he is perfectly unrestrained and expresses himself with unchecked freedom. But even then, how imperfect is our knowledge of one another? How often and how great we mistake one another? How frequently we ascribe to one another deeds that were not done or words that were not spoken or feelings that were not cherished? how different we know ourselves to be in character and in spirit and emotive from the conception of ourselves which our neighbor has formed of us. And yet again, how far from being absolutely true is the estimate we form of ourselves? How possible and how practicable it is for us to overestimate our virtues and underestimate our weaknesses, follies, and guilt so much so that it is a question whether a man knows himself as well as his discerning neighbor does. We are convinced that it is often the case that the verdict of a man's intimate friend is much nearer the mark of truth than his own. The conclusion to which we are driven is that one and only one knows us all together. Before this statement, In verse 23, if we were to back up to verse number 19, David says, Surely you will slay the wicked. Lord, away, bloodthirsty men. Be gone. They blaspheme your name and stand in arrogance against you. How silly can they be? Then in 21, he says, Oh, Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I be grieved with them? Yes, I hate them for your enemies are my enemies too. And he says, search me, O God. And here we get our thought. He makes a statement, which he says, you know, my character of person is that I hate those that hate God. That's who I'm defining myself as. But then he turns around and says, Lord, now I want you to try me and see if what I said about myself is really true. Sometimes we see in others and we say, oh, they really love the Lord. Oh, they this or they that. Or we'll look at another person and say, oh, they ain't worth a dime. I wouldn't waste my time with them. But sometimes God sees that individual. God sees you differently than you see that individual or that individual sees you. So David's thought here is that, Lord, I want you to do the searching. Because sometimes what I say about myself, even though I might, you know, I might be reading my own press clippings. I might believe, I might fool myself into thinking I'm something that I'm not. I might believe and fool myself into thinking something about another person. And this is how we get into trouble in a lot of our relationships and inter- interactions with each other, is that we, we've painted these things and we put people in categories that they don't belong. A lot of times that we, we've given certain people God's glory and then wonder where we went wrong. But David here puts it all back into perspective. The Bible told them in the Old Testament, be still, the children of Israel. When they came to a place where they thought their back was against the wall and they came to the sea after and Pharaoh was on their track. God told them, be still and know that I am God. And we've heard the saying in, in the religious world for a long time, let God be God. And then you think to yourself, I, what sense does that statement make as if I could stop God from being God? The psalmist brings in the free will that's given to man by to establish a relationship. Notice how he starts this psalm. Let's back up now to verse number one. He says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word in my tongue, below, O oh Lord, thou knowest it all Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain unto it. The Amplified Version reads that like this. O oh Lord, you have searched me thoroughly, and have known me. You know my downsitting and my uprising. You understand my thought afar of off. You sift and search out my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue that is still unuttered. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have beset me and shut me in, behind and before. And you have laid your hand upon me. Your infinite knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high above me. So the psalmist acknowledges that God has already searched them. That's God being God. In all honesty, there's no living person that ever walked the face of the earth that's ever going to get past the all seeing eye of God. But yet in verse number 23, he welcomes the search. There are two types of people. There's the person who welcomes the search and the one who doesn't welcome the search. There are some, I hope none of us in this room, that believe that they'll be able to hide from God some of the things that they think, they say, and they do. They think that God doesn't take notice of the way they treat individuals. They don't think that God is taking note of how they speak to people, how they interact with people, how they conduct themselves. But God is taking copious notes of everything. So one may ask, since it is in God's nature to have a spirit that thoroughly searches every heart, why does it matter whether I welcome the search or not? And that's the defining point, is will you allow God to search you, or will you go kicking and screaming? Isaiah 1 and 18, he says, come, let us talk this over, says the Lord. No matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can take it out and make you as clean As freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained and red as crimson, I can make you white as wool. If you will only let me help you, if you will only obey, then will I make you rich. But if you keep on turning your backs and refusing to listen to me, you will be killed by your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. And today, We've seen in the news the last several weeks, there are a lot of people being killed by their enemies. Depression, pride, arrogance, all types of sin. They're being killed by it. They're being choked by it because some have turned their back on God. As he told the children of Israel, when Moses was in the mountain getting the mind of God, taking down the law of God, and he came back and found them That they have melted down gold and made a golden calf. God says, all right, I'm going to let you have your calf, even though you named it after me. Now I'm going to make you put that in the water. That which you worship now is going to be your resource to live on. So he made them drink their idol. God will let us have our way. He doesn't go against our free will. We all have to be willing over here. So he says, if you be willing and obey. This he often told Israel, he often told Moses, he often told Joshua, the prophets. You have a choice in this. There's a theologian named T. DeWitt Talmadge that said, this heart, the spirit of a man, is a labyrinth more intricate than the mausoleum of the ancient kings. There are in our souls doors that have never been opened, languages which have never been translated, enigmas that have never been solved, monsters that have never been hunted down. And it was in the appreciation of that fact that the author of this text cries out, search me, O God, and try me. Now, it's interesting that if you do a search of this, of people in the text, in the Bible, asking God to search them, I think you only find two or three references. And you would think that throughout the Bible, you know, these people want to serve God. Surely had they had to ask God, you know, test me out, try me, search me. In fact, you only have David and Job. <laughs> All the heroes of the faith. They did wonderful things. They performed miracles for God. But hardly any of them said, Lord, search me. That's interesting. God searches the heart. Let's get First Chronicles 28. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. He talks to Solomon. Solomon, my son, get to know the God of your fathers. Worship and serve him with a clean heart and a willing mind. For the Lord sees every heart and understands And knows every thought. If you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will permanently throw you aside. Now, I don't want to be permanent. Permanently? Permanently. So that right there throws out the Catholic belief of intermediate state. Purgatory. That's your holding place. But here he tells Solomon, there's no holding place. Either you let me work on you and make you right in my eyes, or you no good. This is where our homage to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ really pays dividends. Because we really didn't bring anything to the table. It's not like we came with all the goods. As Natalie always says, he did all that and then we the prize. We the prize. After all he went through, we the prize. Now, if you were getting yourself in the end, wouldn't you be disappointed? <laughs> that, that's all I get. Anybody ever been in like a contest or something? <laughs> <and> once something? <laughs> that is all I get. But he says, "I'll permanently throw you aside." Proverbs twenty and twenty-seven. And I love this one, and we'll probably get to this point a little later. The Bible says a man's conscience is the Lord's searchlight, exposing his hidden motives. A man's conscience is God's searchlight. The conscience that, it, that God placed in us that convicts us of right and wrong, good and evil. See now. There was a time when the conscience really didn't play a role in this. When God created Adam, he created him in his likeness and in his image. And he told him there's only one tree you can't eat of, and that's the tree of the knowledge. Because when, once you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is going to unleash your conscience. And that is going to be the thing that condemns you or releases you or frees you for the rest of your life. Adam's conscience kicked in right away because he had been talking to God every day. In the cool of the. he talked to Adam every day. Then all of a sudden, one day, God comes and talks to him like any other day and says, Adam, where are you? He said, Lord, I heard you in the garden and I hid. What, what changed? The conscience. God's light was searching him. And God never accused Adam of a thing. He allowed Adam to confess, Lord, I I heard you. What do you mean? Did you touch that tree? Sometimes God will come to us with questions. Most trials are proven and tested in court with questions and answers. They don't allow badgering the witness. They don't allow the attorneys to put words in the mouths of the witnesses. It has to be a series of, of questions Where were you this night? What did you do? Where did you go? Who were you with? How do you recall the events of that evening or that morning? And the witness is instructed to answer the question that has been asked. Now, when our consciences come to us, there's some questions we got to answer to. So he says, a man's conscience is the Lord's searchlight exposing his hidden motives. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. And I think that this is where a lot of Christianity, especially the charismatic movement, has really lost their position in the world to transform the world. Is because we come a lot of times to condemn people for things that they're already condemned for. Their conscience, God's searchlight is already on the inside working. What they need is a conviction. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and the Bible says that the word that he preached pricked their heart, it was something in them that wanted to respond to what he was saying. Condemnation wants somebody, only makes people want to flee. Adam was condemned. He wasn't convicted. He was condemned. That's why he hid. Jeremiah 17, verse number 10 says, Only the Lord knows. He searches all hearts and examines deepest motives. So he can give to each person his right reward according to his deeds, how he has lived. See, sometimes we can judge a thing a person does. A person flat out lied on you. And we like that in the church. Been lied on, mistreated, talked about. (laughs) We put it in every song. It could be a song about the cross. We will put in, I've been lied on, been... Wait, we're talking about Jesus dying on the cross. How how do we get to you? But sometimes, although we can read the action of an individual, sometimes we can't read the motive. Because the motive is deep down in the heart, deep down in the spirit. Sometimes we may try to search it out. Oh, they did this because we could be wrong. We could be right. But God knows the exact motive. Of why all of us do the things that we do. So with Adam, Adam also had to get to a place to where he had to become willing and obedient. God wasn't gonna make him. If God doesn't make the angels worship him, what makes you think he's gonna make us worship him? The angels had just had to accept their fate for going against God's sovereignty. It was never the will of God for us to be forced to do anything right. Our willingness is the key to our salvation. Philippians 2 and 13. I love this verse. Because if we take this verse in its pure essence, we will not be self-righteous. Self-righteousness is a very bad thing. There's so much pride. When we come before God and tell him all the things we are and all. The, and we appear before people and say, uh, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I did this and I did that and I didn't do this. Everything starts with I. All of our statements start with I, but then we say, oh, God is everything. No. What's with all the I statements? Philippians 2 and 13 says that energy is God's energy and energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. And for this one, I actually like the King James Version. So I'm going to read that one, too. Says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. See, a lot of times we always talk about doing his good pleasure. Some of us that were raised in church. Got slapped if you didn't sit up straight in church. We did it, but there was no will there. I didn't want, I didn't want to do it. I, don't, I want to be at the baseball diamond, go at the park with my friends on Sunday when I was 10 years old. What, what are we doing in church? Just it's hot in here. I'm supposed to be quiet. I can't understand what the minister is talking about. It's way beyond my comprehension level. But there had to come a time in my personal life to where I had to allow God to work in me so that I might want to want to do right. There is a difference. That's the motive. Whether you do what you're supposed to do or whether you want to do what you're supposed to do. Because some people think that if I do it, then that will get God's attention. That's only the action. It's not the motive. Let's get. Isaiah, because Natalie mentioned something in the first session, talking about how we try to, try to uh, manipulate God with our fasting and our religious acts. Let's get Isaiah. It's, it's not new to our day. They did it back here. I think it's chapter uh, 58. It says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show me and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me daily, and delight to know my ways. As a nation, they did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Wherefore, have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, you fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. You shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? And what do we do? I'm going to put this flesh on fast. Your flesh can't be fixed by a fast. <clears throat> I'm going to make this flesh suffer. I'm going to push my plate back. Guess what? Your flesh is going to be hungry 24 hours later. It's going to have the same desires. A day for a man to afflict the soul. Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? That's the fast that God requires. And so much of his chiding with Israel really hadn't, I mean, they sinned, they did sinful acts, but within that there was also injustice. And we forget that justice, being just, is one of God's key attributes, along with holiness along with righteousness, just is one of his attributes. That's who he is. It's like love. And when we don't operate in the attributes that he portrays to us, we're in sin. And we can't change his mind about the sin that we're in. We can't manipulate God like that because he knows the motive. He knows, oh, they just want my attention. He knows who was following him for the fish and the loaves. He didn't stop them from coming, but he let his inner circle know they only follow me for the fish and the loaves. They only want the miracles I could work for them. This is why he made distinction. Who do men say that I am? That's one opinion. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Ezekiel. Some say that you're one of the prophets. All right. Now, that, I'm glad you guys got a survey of what everybody else thinks. Now, what do you, who do you say that I am? Then Peter chimed in. You're, you're the Son of God. You're God manifested in the flesh. So so God's not being tricked by who's around him. We get tricked by who's around us. The ones that kiss up, try to get close, try to manipulate. So he says here, the heart searched. Search me, O God. This word search is from the Hebrew word kokar, which means to penetrate or to examine intimately. Is it possible for God to search a human heart and not come up with something that's lacking? Something that's sinful? Something that's impure? Or something that keeps us to whatever extent at a distance from God? Is it possible for him to search any human heart on the earth and not find something And the answer is no. All of us. Sometimes we don't believe the scripture. All. Have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. All. That excludes no one. Except the one who was born to take away sin. So he says, search me and know my heart. It's a noble quality for one to willfully be searched. A good man desires to know the worst of himself. I want to balance this because I don't want everybody to go around and start beating themselves up, talk about what they ain't, woe is me. But there has to be a balance. If you're going to bask in the good qualities, we got to come on and bring in some of those bad qualities. Because as long as we neglect the bad qualities, there's really nothing that we're going to try to improve about ourselves. There's nothing that we want to change. And there has to be constant change to those that believed him. He gave them power not to be the sons of God, but to become the sons of God. There's there's a process of becoming that we have to follow. And Paul says, I see through a glass darkly, but then I'll be changed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. So there's a process that if I get stuck over here. And I I refuse to acknowledge those things that I know God's knocking on my heart and saying, I don't that that's pretty ugly. And people may sing your praises. You may sing your own praises. But there's something in every individual in here, including myself, I'm not exempt that God says, I don't like it. And it's not only a good practice just to have this discussion with God, but we've got to have this discussion amongst each other. If we want our interpersonal relationships to be better, sometimes we get defensive when little statements, you know, you always do. No, I don't. You just sensitive. We get defensive very quick. And if we're that defensive with each other, how defensive are we with God? Remember, she talked about vulnerability before and coming before God without your defenses One thing that can spoil us is pride. Pride will only acknowledge the good qualities while ignoring or refusing to deal with the bad, no matter how evident they may be. Some of us think that we really slick with our bad qualities. And I'm saying bad qualities be nice. I mean, in all in in the context of this lesson, it's sinful. It's sin. Anything that causes you to miss the mark with God is sin. But we think we're hiding them, but they're extremely evident. You know, we had this discussion about, uh, you know, people that just don't take baths. Like, how could you not bathe? And I'm saying, well, you gotta smell yourself because you know everybody can. And she believed that, you know, that, you know, after being stinky so long, you become immune to you really don't smell it. And I guess, you know, I guess it makes sense. Some of us have been in a stench so long, we don't smell. Other people smell it. It's evident. This is how God sees us, y'all. We may get used to our stench, but we, when we, we try to bring that into God's presence... And we tell God, when I see the cloud, like the song said, when I see the cloud, Lord, I'm going to run in. When I see the cloud, I'm going to jump in. When I see the cloud, I'm going to just have my way and get in. But when you get in there, there's going to be some stuff exposed. When you get in a fire, you're going to be tried to see what kind of saint you are, what kind of person you are. Has anybody been through a test and you look back in retrospect and say, man, I wasn't the person I thought I was. It brought out something ugly in you. It brought you to a place to where you, you were bitter, angry. You hated someone. Where you look back and say, wow, I didn't think that I can have that, that type of feeling for a person. And we justify it. <laughs> Search me, oh God. <laughs> and know my heart. So most of us. Can view this scripture and be comfortable in this ex- if this exchange takes place, the company of us and God in the company of just us and God, but God has more ways than one to reveal our evil ways, so you can't just get away with saying okay i i'm you know I'm, I'm just going to tell God all my problems. God made us to be interpersonal people, and whatever is this way. It's going to be horizontal, too. The cross went both ways. It was vertical and horizontal. The greatest commandment is what? Love God. And the second is what? Love others. And as much as we study these scriptures, we talk about the Old Testament prophets. He says all of those prophets and all of those laws hinge on these two laws. We could pride ourselves on knowing about the tabernacle and knowing about uh, types and shadows and go in the Old Testament and do all this stuff. But if we can't love God and then love others, guess what? All of it's for nothing. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. So how does he search us? Number one, he does it by his spirit. If you were to read, I think it's Hebrews 4, he talks about how How much of a fine sword the spirit is. Dividing between soul and spirit. Two things, two parts of our makeup that we can't even see. Yet God's spirit is able to divide between them and tell the difference. The bone and the marrow. He knows how, how to separate. Number two, he does it by his word. He's given us the scriptures and told us to study them. He's given us Old Testament. And told them that study their journey with me. Look at their mistakes. Look at their accomplishments. They're written for you. That your faith might be strong. They're not just stories for you to tell and the preacher to grab the mic and shake his ear. Talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and tell a good story. These things are written to reveal God to us. But any revelation of God is going to have to come. The, in the Old Testament, the first thing that they approached wasn't the altar. It was the mirror, the looking glass. We just want to hit the altar. Lord, let me get to the altar. Kneel at the altar. Let me give him a sacrifice. But before that, you had a looking glass. And even before, even on the way to the altar, the priests were there to inspect the sacrifice. The sacrifice. Every sacrifice has to be inspected. What kind of lamb is this? I need to make sure this lamb doesn't have a blemish. I need to make sure your sacrifice is pure. It's according to the law, that it's acceptable to God. So he does it by his word. Then he does it by our conscience. Again, Proverbs 20 and 27. I think that's going to turn into my my favorite scripture for a minute. A man's conscience is the Lord's searchlight exposing his hidden motives you read, you read through some stuff and the apostles even asked one time, Lord is it possible that anybody can be saved because these things that you're telling us they're they just hard no, nobody can live up to that and he says with God, with God all things are possible this one we don't like He searches us through the world. Because the people on your job might see a different you than the saints saw at you at church on Sunday. You look real nice Sunday. Had your smile on. Had your tambourine and your Bible in your hand. You looked happy. Your family at home knows you. Your friends that you hang out with on a daily basis. They know you a little bit better than the f- the folk you spend just a couple hours with every now and then. And they could tell you, you're not serious. You just talk that Jesus talk. Mm. So he does it through the world. Then he does it through the church. He gives us the five-fold ministry. He gives us the gifts of the spirit. He gives us these things In order for the church to grow into the full stature of the nature of Christ. Remember that growth process? But however he does it, however he searches you. One thing we have to know is that he's doing it in love. And this, again, is where we have to be vulnerable. Where we have to let our defensives down and allow God to love us. Because sometimes love is chastisement. The old folks say ain't nothing like tough love. One thing I used to love about my my mother-in-law is she knew how to love some people. Some she was gentle with. Some she had to lay into really heavy. But most people understood that this woman loved me. Whether they got chewed up every now and again, got told off, they knew she's saying this because she loved me. That's the type of saints that we ought to be. That's the type of people that God wants to be, that people in our experience know they love me. And whatever they they tell me, whether it's good or bad, they're going to do it in love. This is where we have to choose our right words, choose the appropriate time, do it not to embarrass people, not to call people out, and not to make you look so much better than the other person. Practical living. So he says, search me, know my heart, try me, and see my thoughts. The word try comes from the Hebrew word balkan. It means to test, especially metals, to investigate, to examine, to prove, or to tempt. The word thoughts comes from the Hebrew word cogitation. Those things that I think intently on. We underestimate the power of our thoughts because we think they're safely locked away in our heads. But thought is so powerful that it will find a way to emerge from the invisible realm into our tangible world. Remember that in the beginning was the word. But that, ro- that word for word means that there was a thought. And that thought became flesh. We're made in his image and after his likeness. He made us people of thought. At the Tower of Babel, they said, we're going to build a tower to heaven. They had an imagination in their mind that we can do this thing. And what did God say? God said, I'm going to go down and confound their language because if these people put their heart to it, they'll do it. He didn't say it was impossible to build a tower to heaven. He said, these people are going to find a way somehow to build this tower. God said that. So our thoughts, we got to be careful because they're going to find a way to reveal themselves and to manifest themselves. The heart is deceitful. It's not one of the deceitful things. It It is deceitful above all other things. We talk about those that are deceit. We talk about politicians all the time, how much they lie. The banks that crashed the economy, the scams that they were running behind closed doors. We love to talk about that kind of stuff. But the Bible tells you your heart is just as deceitful as Bank of America. CEOs. Not me. Yeah, you. Your heart is deceitful above all else, and who can know it? So in the beginning, there was a thought, an idea. And that thought, that idea became flesh and dwelt among us. It started to interact amongst them. That which was invisible became substantial. That's what your thoughts will do, whether good or evil. This is why David can make his proclamation of how he hates those that hate God. And your enemies are my enemy. Then he turns around and says, now, Lord, now that I've said that, search me, O God. So God will try our thoughts, the microscopic embryonic stage of our actions. That's what your thoughts are. They're that microscopic embryonic stage, that thing that you can't see, but you know you're pregnant. It's microscopic. No, nobody can see it. There's no baby bump. From here, he can determine the presence of wickedness. From the embryonic stage of your thought, God knows whether it's going to be good or wicked. He said it with the twins, Jacob and Esau. He said, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Before they were born, he hated Esau. Lord, give the the baby time to do something. No, I know what's in his heart. I know what's in there. He doesn't have to wait for us to act out our thoughts. Look at Genesis six and five. He said, I I looked at the state of mankind and I saw that they not only were they wicked, they did bad actions." He said, but every imagination of their thought. Look how God words that not just their thought, but their thoughts had imaginations. That's almost like a double-hitting thing, mm-hmm. and we think that what's in our our hearts is pure. It's deceitful. Right. The imaginations that are in your heart. It came to such a place where Jesus said, "Now you've heard me. You know you've heard the law that says that if a man commits adultery, that he is worthy of death. He's he's wrong with God. He's got to he's got to change his way." He said, "But not only that, but I'm gonna change that a little bit." If a man looks on a woman and lusts after her in his what? In his heart. If that imagination runs too far, he's already done it and I've already charged him with adultery. These are the things that say, Lord, who can be saved? Because our imaginations can get the best of us. Sometimes your mind can run to the wrong place and it ain't just men. We get to that men are from Mars and women are from whatever planets they from. We all from Earth, (laughs) y'all. And it's our nature that will get us in trouble. And these are the things that we have to be honest with. Don't let your imagination get you in trouble. Another idea that he brings into this word thoughts is the idea of branches, the idea is that branches can only produce what they receive from the vine or the root. Examining the branches will reveal the nature of the vine. You say, I love Jesus. The things you do don't line up with that statement. You a branch, but whose branch are you? Are you Jesus's branch? Or are you the devil's branch? You can't get cherries from an orange tree. Who, you, who are you tied to? What are those branches emulating? The idea is search me thoroughly. Examine not merely my outward conduct, but what I think about. What are my purposes? What passes through my mind? What occupies my imagination and my memory? I like that one, the memory. Because now you're recalling. Now you're bringing up stuff. That was once in your heart that really, you know, you ain't paid attention to in a while, but your memory recalls it. This is what gets a lot of people in trouble. I remember when. (laughs) (laughs) My memory. What secures my affections and controls my will? He must be a very sincere man who prays that God will search his thoughts, for there are few who would be willing that their fellow man, even their best friends, should know all that they're thinking about. Some of your imaginations, you don't want to tell your friends. Because they might step back. Man, I know you was thinking like that. <laughs> the Bible talks about this conscience being seared. He talks about those that are in the church. Who, who taught doctrines of devils and started having itching ears to receive things. He said they do these things and they, they excuse themselves. And we had this discussion about one popular TV evangelist uh, at dinner that once they get to a certain point, they don't get convicted anymore because the Bible says their conscience has been seared. Hot iron. It takes away the feeling It scabs over and and you got skin there, but the tissue is all damaged to where you can't feel anything. It's very close to a reprobate, if, if not the beginning stages. Because if that's the searchlight that God put in you. And it's seared now to where it doesn't feel what it needs to feel to convict you to get right with God. Because God has no fellowship with what? Sin. He places repentance in the mix in order for us to get back to God. But with the seer conscience there, that takes out repentance. Also beneath this meaning of the word thoughts, because this word thoughts in this verse is only found in two other places. I mean, in one other place. And that's in Psalm 94 and 19. And it brings in the word anxiety. Anxious thoughts. Now, what is one of the biggest things that our society is battling with today? Anxiety. That presents a conscience problem. When anxiety runs rampant in a society, there's something wrong with the conscience of that society. This is why there's so many more killings. Just seven folk in the last two weeks have been shot to death. High-profile cases. Somebody's mind is messed up. Suicides. I believe it's two every minute or one every two minutes, one of those. Every other minute there's a suicide. And with anxiety, the Lord tells us don't be anxious for anything. The answer to your anxiety, he says, but by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Remember that, that thing, what, what do I wake up with anymore? morning? let's get verse 17 of Psalm 139, because I, I have to bring that in. Now, we read down to verse 6 before, and then from 7 to on down, he goes to, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I fly on the wings of the north, you're there. And no matter where I go, I can't escape your presence. For you are everywhere all at the same time. And you know all things all at once, and every variable of every situation all at one time. Verse 16, he says, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. What is he saying here? How precious are your thoughts toward me? God is thinking of you all the time. Then he says, they're great in number. What made David write this? Because now we, we got songs. Babyface wrote a song. How often do you think of me? How often do I cross your mind? Or was that after seven? Uh, one of them. <laughs> yeah, a lot of folk wondering, do, do you even think about me? But here he says, God, you think about me all the time. If I should count them. Now, there's another thing that he counts more than the sin, and that was Abraham's seed. He said, but your thoughts toward me are more than the number of Abraham's seed. When I awake, I am still with you. When I wake up, the first thing that should pop in our minds is God is thinking of me. Now, the result of that should be, since he's thinking about me in the morning, because remember, What's renewed every morning? His mercy and his compassion. If they're renewed every morning, that should trigger something in us to wake up with him on our mind. But how many of us wake up with our anxieties? How am I going to pay this bill? What am I going to do about this child? What's going to happen with my marriage? These are the things now that we wake up with. What what am I going to do about this job situation? I got bills to pay. I got babies to feed. I got mouths to feed. I need clothes. I need something to eat. We wake up with anxious thoughts. We're not allowing God to search our hearts and know our thoughts. He says, In the morning, I wake up. You're thinking about me. So he says, Search me and see whether there be any wicked way. This word wicked way actually can be interpreted way of pain. Worship is also tied to this word. So in essence, a lot, but not all of pain is caused by false worship. It goes to a little bit of what Natalie was talking about before. Because I've been vulnerable to the wrong people. I now close down because I've been hurt. That pain now reflects, I reflect that toward God now. I I can't trust you because I don't know if you're really going to hurt me or not. I don't know if you're going to stop me from being hurt. I don't trust that you can stop me from being hurt. But it has a lot to do with misplaced trust in our lives. And putting everybody and everything in our surrounding in their perspective places. That husband, that wife should not ever trump God. But in a a lot of relationships, that husband, that wife is more important to them than God. When something falters with that person, it ruins something in them because that worship was directed, was supposed to be directed toward God. So that causes a way of pain. Our process of thought should be examined by God because it is our thoughts that lead us into worship, whether true or false. So we must be careful what we worship. We can easily ascertain what we're worshiping by our level of sorrow. I'll say that again. We have to be careful what we worship, and we can easily ascertain what we're worshiping by our level of sorrow. The Bible says the blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow to it. So if you got sorrow somewhere, and I'm not just talking about the the care, the the things that you go through in life, because there there are seasons and times for everything. But if you're in a constant state of depression and sorrow and woe is me and the can't help it, there's a problem probably somewhere with your worship. What things or lack of things cause you to be filled with constant sorrow? These are questions we should ask. Who has the power to send you into complete depression? I challenge you to question whether you are worshiping those things or those people or God. Because if you give them the power to, to completely destroy your person, this word wicked way can also mean ways of grief. These are ways which lead to grief, which involve either bitter repentance or severe chastisement. Now we get into displeasing God. When you get into those areas that displease God, you're causing yourself grief because now God's spirit has to chastise you. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap sooner or later. And all sin has to be repented of at one point in time. So after emphatically declaring the deity of Christ, John warns the church to keep ourselves from idols. He says little children in the scripture he quotes before that. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Then he says, after making such a statement like that, why would he turn around and say, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't displace your worship. With this psalm, he does five steps. Search. Try. Know and see and then lead. See, we want to be led, but we don't want to be searched and tried. We, want, we don't want the Lord to look and see. I want to be able to walk with you, Lord, and hide the things that I want to hide in my little conscious thoughts. I want my imaginations to have a little free course. But these things are dangerous to the spirit. It makes me wonder, Lord, can any be saved? But he answers back and says, with God. With God. All things are possible. Now, you can't ask God to search you if you really don't mean it. People say you get what you ask for. So it might take a little time. My prayer is that we will be willing to do it sooner rather than later. Because there is that growth. He he commands us to grow in grace. Does that mean his grace has to be taken in in steps? His grace is perfect, but it's our reception of and not only our reception, but our perception of his grace in our lives that we have to get accustomed to with every level of life. Like she said, it's not it's not the fact that he loves us. You can't do anything about that. He is love. The question is, do you feel loved by him? Do you feel like he, he's got your back? Do you feel like when you wake up in the morning, God's thinking of you? Because a lot of us, we wake up and so, we feel forsaken. When the anxieties of life, those conscious, anxious thoughts that are in our minds constantly, that's what we think about all day is, Lord, how am I going to solve this problem? What am I going to do about this? When he says, bring it to me, cast your cares on me, for I care for you. As easy as that sounds, we'll do it with a bellhop at a hotel. We can't wait to pull up to the on vacation, get them suitcases out. Can I take? Yeah, take this bag. We're rooming. here. we up in three twenty one. We, we'll meet you up there. We'll meet you up there. But when God says, "I would like to for you to unload your luggage," no, no, I got it. I got it. I, I got precious stuff in here. I don't trust you. You might try to steal it. I got stuff I want to hold on to. I don't want nobody to see it. God says, no, come on, give it to me. Then he said, okay, well, I'll tell you what. You give me yours and I'll give you mine. We'll trade burdens because mine is easy. My yoke is light. He said, I'll take your heavy one that you can't bear, that you're about to break under pressure under, And I'll give you mine because mine's already been dealt with on the cross. I've already surpassed the anger of God and come out victorious. I've already been through the chastisement of God on the cross and I came out with the victory. I've already dealt with the forsakenness of God, God turning his back. You don't have to go through that because I went through it for you. So he tells us why die when you can live.